Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. Time for School, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Sammy Hagar becomes the lead singer of Van Halen, and you relate the story, but you re- you relate it real quick and get off it. Do you believe it? Is there truth to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, now, come Ted on. Templeman has told me the story. Ted Templeman told me the story himself a number of times. Um, it's absolutely true. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show. My name is Joe Burns. We're into the summer, well into it. It is July, and uh, if you've listened to the Rock School Show for any extended period of time, you know that in the summer we do an extended topic, something that covers three or four shows. Well, for the month of July, four shows in a row, we're going to do the extended topic of interviews. I've set up four interviews in a row, so this is one of four. In fact, number one of four. Today's interview, the first one of four, is going to be with Greg Renoff. If you recognize the name, then you're a Van Halen fan. As a matter of fact, he is the author of the book Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And for the next hour, we're going to talk to him. We're going to talk Van Halen. And hopefully at the end of it, you'll want to go and pick up his book. So without further ado, for an hour, author Greg Renoff on the Rock School Radio Show. On the phone with us uh, right now, We've got Greg Renoff, Ph.D., the author of the book Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Greg, thanks a lot for coming on and speaking with us. Hey, Joe, real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I tell you what, I have one of the the signed books. I bought it off the Van Halen news desk. When I saw that this came out, I grabbed it immediately. Uh, Tell me about why somebody with a Ph.D., in American history, would write a book about, as you call it, a Southern California party band? Yeah, you know, uh, there's a great question, and I, um, I typically start three or four years ago back when I tell the story um, about when I really started getting to write the book intensely, but I'll go back to when I was about 15 years old, and, you know, I just was, uh, like a lot of teenagers in America, I, 1984 uh, was the year that I fell in love with Van Halen, and uh, in the years that followed... Um, you know, my fandom always remained pretty, pretty uh, faithful over the years of Van Halen. And uh, at the same time, I was a big um, reader of guitar magazines and rock magazines. And then, you know, life goes on and I ended up going to graduate school and getting a Ph.D. in history. And, um, you know, I never really stopped uh, my love for rock music. And actually, in my free time, I used to do a lot of reading of rock biographies. And in doing that and thinking about... Um, Van Halen, there were a couple of uh, things where I would, you know, kind of go back and read moments where I'd go back and revisit old magazine articles, and there's been some books that have been written on Van Halen, and, you know, I always thought those sources didn't really uh, tell me what I wanted to know about the band's beginnings. There were all these little tidbits you would read about backyard parties, as you alluded to, or about um, what t-shirt contests, or about the band starting in 1974 or 1973, 
different years were given. And I thought about it as a historian. I thought, well, that's a lot of time that went by between those guys getting a record deal and becoming famous, so to speak, in 1977, 78, um, and their start. And so um, I just got really curious and just started to do a couple of interviews initially uh, with some folks that I uh, came across on Facebook, actually. Um, one gentleman was a owner of a a bar in uh, Van Nuys, California in 1975, 76. He pioneered the wet t-shirt contest inside of bars. And uh, in talking to him, the story he told was really quite entertaining. It turned out there was this um, this legal case that came out of his, uh, his little uh, entertainment, which was a uh, was quite successful until the police uh, raided it. The vice squad raided it in 1976, and he told me about how he had hired Van Halen. And in fact, that Van Halen had been on stage when the vice squad had broken in and broken up the uh, the night. And so that kind of got piqued my interest, and I just kept uh, slugging along on it. And uh, yeah, I sort of used my American history background to try to tell the story about, um, I'd say, how kids entertained themselves in suburban America and how this rock band Van Halen started out as a local, as I mentioned in the title of the book, the Backyard Party Band. the thing about uh, your book that I absolutely loved, and I sat probably and killed it in maybe two sittings, because as uh, as I told you in the first email back to you, there may be a bigger Van Halen fan here on Earth, but they'd have to prove it to me. Uh, <laughs> the thing about your book is I knew of most of the stories inside of the book, but the thing is mm-hmm. I didn't know the stories to the degree of fact that you present them. And I'll give you an example, and maybe you can expand upon it. If you're a Van Halen fan, you probably know the story, or at least the the you know, overriding idea, that David Lee Roth gets into Van Halen because Van Halen was tired of paying him money to rent his PA. And that's right. normally where the story ends. But there's a whole lot more to it than just that, as your book you know, showed. Yeah, and that's all part of, um, first... Yeah, my fandom, of course, it sounds like we're, we're sort of paralleling in the same ways that I had read these stories over and over, and I had um, sort of had some basic starting points for things that I thought would be what I would have at the time would have called sort of landmark events in Van Halen history. This is the very beginning of trying to write this book. I would have said David Lee Roth joins Van Halen. You can get into maybe the Gene Simmons episode. Ted Templeman discovering them. And so the, yeah, the how David Lee Roth joined Van Halen story, you know, I thought would be a fairly straightforward um, part of the book. But I ended up talking to a, a gentleman by the name of Jim Pusey, who was a, the keyboard player in Van Halen for some period of time, probably in 1973. He was, uh, he was not easy to track down. And with the help of my uh, very good friend, Michael Kelly, we were able to get a number for him. And I called him and he was, needless to say, surprised that I was calling and sort of wondering, like, what is with this person who's calling me up, says he's going to write a book about Van Halen and um, wanted to talk to him. So he sort of thought it was a kind of a non-factor of his Van Halen um, membership, so to speak, because, you know, it was so before, long before they became famous. But we talked and he sort of explained to me a little bit more about the about the way that David Lee Roth ended up joining Van Halen and, uh, and kind of taking his stories that he told me and then 
using what was available in David the Ross biography, I sort of was able to flesh out what went on, which was that, uh, yeah, Roth was uh, sort of upped, upped the ante when it came to trying to, to encourage Eddie and Alex to make the right decision in his mind, which is let them join, let him join Van Halen. And so, um, yeah, that was one example of, yeah, a story that it ended up being um, a lot more there than I had thought and probably you had thought before I had started this book. I mean, I had, I had, like everybody else, just thought, oh, this is David, you know, had uh, been invited to join Van Halen and the brothers always talk about, well, everyone else in town became a doctor or a lawyer and Dave was the only one left and he joined the band, that sort of story. And, you know, that really was just sort of a an artistic shorthand for what really went on, which was that Dave um, kind of gave them a, a offer that they couldn't refuse, which was basically, if you don't let me join the band, you're not going to be able to use my PA system uh, kind of on short notice, which was the first step towards um, those guys really taking it seriously. And then eventually, um, to be clear, those guys deciding, I think particularly Alex, that this was the right move to get this guy to join the band, not just because he had a PA system, because they needed a front man. And uh, Roth was certainly an unorthodox singer at the time and probably was um, not seen by most people in Pasadena as a guy who would have become a a great uh, rock singer, but nonetheless, uh, Alex, I think, especially saw something in Dave, the showmanship, the flamboyance, the, the uh, willingness to sort of take the heat and uh, go out in front and let Eddie just play the guitar, and that was, that was the right move because Dave was band. I did notice that in the book, although there wasn't a specific page or paragraph or section that talked about Roth's optimism, it seemed that he was, you know, a cockeyed optimist really isn't the correct term. It, uh, it was almost, you know, an optimist past the, uh, past the point of realism. Even when uh, the Gene Simmons deal, which we should talk about, fell through, and Eddie and Alex were looking at each other going, that was it. That was our shot. We're done. We're never going to make it in this business. It was Roth that said, no, 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 no. Forget it. We will continue forward. He, he, it seems, and I've read interviews with him, even uh, one of the interviews that, uh, and articles that you wrote on his uh, Crazy From The Heat album. Actually, no, it wasn't Crazy From The Heat. It was his first solo album with Steve I. It, no matter what happens, you know, when his movie fell through, it didn't matter. There's just a consistent optimism. There is no failure in this guy's eyes. There is only what happened, and we move forward from it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is definitely a thread that runs through um, Roth's, yeah, career. Um, you know, kind of getting a little, we'll go a little bit of a straight here. I mean, I don't doubt that in the 90s when his career was really, really, at the bottom, um, I don't doubt that, that he had very dark moments. I mean, I think we would be, um, it would be hard for me to believe that he never, you know, in his room by himself, never thought, you know, this is never going to change. This is tough. But um, he's, he's a very resilient person. And, yeah, and, and I talked to um, Pete Angelus, who was Dave's partner in crime for um, his solo, early solo career through the 80s and the early 90s before they parted ways and then was working with Van Halen as far back as 1977. Yeah, he said they got that phone call in 1980. Five, um, they were ready to start shooting this movie, and so Dave had had left Van Halen, and you figure now he's cut himself loose, and he's cut himself loose in, loose in part because he wants to make this movie, and now he's in a situation where he gets a phone call. This is oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to make your movie. 
we're pulling the, the funding for this. Um, he just pivoted. You're right. He pivoted to plan B, which is okay. Well, we'll just make a, we'll make the album, um, not be a soundtrack for a movie. It's going to be a regular album. And he sort of moved forward and that, yeah, that goes back all the way to the Gene Simmons days. And, uh, that was a, yeah, that was a story that was told to me by, uh, a gentleman who was in that car, he and his brother had picked up the Van Halen brothers and David Lee Roth and were driving them back to Pasadena from LAX. And uh, he said that was the most dramatic moment he'd ever seen um, in the sort of Van Halen band or- orbit. He'd been known Dave since early on, way before Dave joined Van Halen. And so he, you know, he said this was a very, very powerful moment that the brothers were just absolutely despondent because as you could imagine, if you have at the time, arguably the, the um, most powerful rock star in America in 1976 who has gone and taken you to his manager and said, sign these guys, and the manager passes on you in sort of a humiliating fashion and sends you back to Los Angeles uh, with nothing, um, you would think that that would be something that would have would have um, set Roth in a spiral, but he, he seemed to understand that he had to be optimistic, and I think, to his credit, he also knew what he had, and I mean that in terms of that he knew he had a great band um and that they had already come so far and that it was just a matter of time before something good happened i think that was what roth was banking on that it wasn't some sort of dumb luck that they had gotten to that position that they got in there because they were talented and that it was going to be um you know talent was going to win out in the end and they were going to be able to uh get a deal eventually and it did come very soon after that go backwards in the book again, to go back to before Gene Simmons and all of that, uh, something that is, you know, as you as you finish the book, you can't get this stuff no more. Explain to me in Southern California and explain to the audience as well, what was the importance of the backyard party to music at that point in time? I mean, I, you just don't see them anymore. No, it's really a lost, I mean, it's a lost art. I don't think it's ever going to come back. You know, at the time, you'd had the sexual revolution. You've also had the era of the big festivals. And rock music is just of central importance to um, culture in a way that it's really, I don't think it is today with so many other things, technology and movies. There's just other competing things that are sort of stolen the, the spotlight for rock music as we, as we both know, but at the time, um, you know, we're thinking about Altamont Woodstock, um, and then the other big festivals that have come out of that time period. It's all those kids had kind of grown up in middle schools. I think hearing about those types of things and well now, um, you know, there's no MTV, you have the radio and you have all these kids in your high school who want to form bands. Uh, these kids didn't want to, you know, today kids want to go and they want to become, uh, programmers for Apple or become the next designer of the next Instagram or something like that. But the, the kids at the time, they wanted to be guitar heroes and drummers and there were all these little bands. And so um, these parties would happen where kids would basically wait for the parents to leave town and then invite their friends over. And Van Halen was one of the bands that was popular doing that in, in and around Pasadena. 
Um, but they eventually become these sort of the supreme band. So, I mean, they became popular. I should say that they, they were one of the earlier competing bands, but by the, by 73, 74, they're kind of the supreme um, band in the San Gabriel Valley when it comes to these types of things. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to really try to make clear in the book to people is that the backyard parties were incredibly important. I thought for helping Van Halen cement a following in and around Pasadena, these parties got huge. Now, not all of them were big. Some of them were broken up immediately, uh, you know, like within 15 minutes of the, the music coming on, the cops would show up and end them. Some of them were not that big at all, but there were a number of parties that were just absolutely massive. And so we're talking 2,500, 2,000 kids in a backyard, 1,500 kids. Um, and these would be on these large properties. And one of the things about Pasadena that has uh, a couple of parts of the of the city that are quite um, wealthy with what you would, you know, look at as almost like estates. And so at those properties, you could keep cramming the kids in. Obviously, if you're in a little suburban uh, post-war bungalow backyard, you're not going to have 2,000 kids in that backyard. But in some of these backyards, they just were big enough. And Van Halen was bringing in staging and PA systems and lights, and they did these mini concerts. And the cops came inevitably and broke them up, oftentimes with a helicopter flying over top shining a light down on the crowd. And this, I think, did a lot for just spreading the word about Van Halen because kids from all over Los Angeles would come. Um, you know, kids would carry a van from 30 minutes, 40 minutes outside of Pasadena. They would go there and go to these parties. One person told me it was easy. Once you, All you had to do was just sort of figure out generally where the party was and then roll down your windows. <laughs> and, and you then could you hear, hear it. it. And then you <laughs> could just, you were that was it. You knew where to go. We got to take a break on the Rock School Show, but we'll be back with more from Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. Back in a minute on Rock School. talk Gene Simmons. Obviously, Simmons was was on the hunt for bands that uh, that he could bring to a coin and say, hey, look, these are these are people we can sign up. And as you suggested, a coin said, no, thanks. And uh, as your book suggested as well, a coin signed up Billy Squire, at least a band that Billy Squire was in. But here's uh, here's the interesting thing. As I said at the beginning of the show, this is what I liked about your book so much. I knew these stories, but I didn't know them to the the detail that uh, that your book shows out. I had heard that Gene Simmons was asking and asking and asking Eddie to join Kiss, but I never knew that Eddie actually went into the studio and recorded at least demos. And I'll let you say it if you're willing. There's sure. apparent there's apparently a song that to this day is may very well be the Eddie Van Halen solo that he recorded as a demo that's on the Kiss album. And I've listened to the song two or three times, and, I, you know, I can't tell, but what's the song, and do you think it's the Eddie Van Halen demo that's on the uh, finished product? Yeah, so let me tell the story. So um, after the record deal fell through for Van Halen via Gene Simmons, 
Um, that was in October, November. That was in November 1976. Gene went out on the road with Kiss. And when he got back to Los Angeles, he was living in L.A. at the time. When he got back, it was uh, April of 1977. And at this point, Van Halen already had a record deal with Warner Brothers. They had signed with uh, Ted Templeman and Mo Austin and signed them up, and they were they were locked down. And so when Gene called, he called for a favor. He said, hey, I want to record some demos for some songs I've written for this upcoming um, Kiss record. And would you guys come into the studio with me? And so Alex and Eddie and Dave, who was uninvited but showed up, go into uh, Village Recorder Studios in Los Angeles, and they record three Kiss songs with Gene. So it's just Gene, Eddie, and Alex. And it's got Love for Sale, Tunnel of Love, if I remember correctly, and then Christine 16. I think those are the three songs. Christine 16 is the song in question, though. Right. Um, so uh, very famously, um, Eddie is the guy who ends up writing the solo that ends up on the record, on the Kiss record, uh, Love Gun, Christine 16. Now, the uh, Eddie's guitar, longtime guitar tech, Rudy Learin, told Stephen Rosen, who was a, a journalist in 1985 or so, 86, when Rosen interviewed Learin, that he said he swore that Eddie's solo was the same and it was the same solo. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, if you were to ask me to bet money, I would put money that it's almost certainly Ace's solo that ended up on the record. But there's no question that the way the solo was played, Eddie imitated, uh, excuse me, Ace imitated Eddie's solo note for note. Um, there's also a great scene in the book uh, where uh, actually Rudy Learn is the one who related the story is that Gene is trying to get Eddie to play the solo a certain way and he can't get him to do it. And eventually Dave has to go into the studio and sort of translate for, for Gene um, Gene and Dave don't get along, by the way, but Dave goes in the studio and kind of explains to to Eddie what Gene what he wants, and then Eddie does it almost you know nails it right away, and Gene is ecstatic that the solo is the way he wants it, and um, yeah, the rest is uh, the rest is up for uh, I guess for us to speculate. I again I I don't have any way of knowing either way. Um, I'd love to ask Eddie if anyone questions that question himself, but I if I, I would have guessed, I would think it probably uh, is Ace on the record, but you know who's who's to say for sure unless those guys. We'll nail it down for us. I don't think Eddie would answer it. I think he'd be very standoffish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. had a little part in the book and I have this starred on my questions because I wanted to ask you this one specifically but did I read it right in your book that all of that two-handed tapping and all of that didn't come about until within a year if not less of getting signed up to a to a label that's that was fairly late in the playing of Eddie Van Halen in terms of uh, getting recorded yeah, so the story goes with the two-handed tapping. Um, Eddie has a friend, or had a friend, I should say, by the name of Terry Kilgore. Um, David Lee Roth, Van Halen fans, that name should ring a bell. Terry Kilgore played with David Lee Roth in the 90s, played on um, Your Filthy Little Mouth, played on the DLR band. He was a Pasadena um, gunslinger guitarist like Eddie, and they were they were sort of friendly rivals. And in 1973, 74 or so, Terry Kilgore ends up taking guitar lessons from a guy by the name of 
Harvey Mandel. I always get a, the, the comedian's name twisted in my mind. Sorry, I tripped myself up there. That's all right. Um, Mandel showed Kilgore two-handed tapping. And there were a number of guys who were doing this, like sort of Steve Hackett of Genesis, Billy it, Gibbons of right. ZZ, ZZ Top. All these guys were sort of was putting done their in, right uh, hand on the, It was done in Steely Dan. Yeah, in Steely Dan, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. And so there, there's this this picking hand onto the fretboard. Um Mandel does a little bit more of a flowing type of tapping. That was nothing that you would say was closely what, what Eddie did later, but it was something that certainly was in the sort of a flavor of that. You know, the thing is that's a big gap in time between when Eddie ends up doing the full, the full on thing. And so, you know, I had asked a number of people about what they remember uh, from seeing this. And, and the, the basic thing I was able to put together was that Eddie was sort of toying with the technique he would occasionally do these little taps here and there, but it was never part of his style. And for whatever reason, I have a couple of things I'll, I'll leave for in the book, but by 1977 or so, that's right, Eddie starts to put together this revolutionary approach to two-handed tapping, which is much more of a legato flowing style that he's doing these long runs with the tapping. He's also using a whammy bar. He's sort of put together the whole package and yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I would say is that the Eddie Van Halen guitar style that we all recognized and love on Van Halen 1 was really put together um, by Eddie in the, just the months before they ended up recording their first record. Uh, that's the interesting thing is that Eddie doesn't start using the whammy bar until about maybe six, eight months before they record the first record. The tapping, he doesn't really unveil, at least in some bootlegs, you can hear it until about the summer of 77. And then that's not to say that Eddie wasn't doing it in his, you know, in his bedroom or the practice space before that, but before he sort of unleashes it, it's, you know, pretty much around the time that they record their first record. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the best evidence suggests that that whole style that we love kind of all came together. And that's, you know, that's the thing is that's really interesting, too, is that the timing of all the way that it all worked out, it sort of all um, was to Van Halen's benefit not to get to deal with Gene Simmons, because I think the songs got better, um, the playing got better, everything sort of kind of hit its final stride for Van Halen in those final months. Okay, I'm going to ask another question about something that uh, if you'd have been around me when uh, when I was reading the book, you could have heard my eyes roll about this because I don't okay. put, I don't put any stock in this story. Okay, there's this story that goes around that during the recording of Van Halen One, Ted Templeman disliked David Lee Roth, and it's the thing about Roth. Apparently, when you're around him, you either absolutely adore him or he drives you insane. The story goes that Ted Templeman had it in his head or said to somebody or somehow the story got out that he was going to suggest or did suggest to replace David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar. And my God, what kismet later in the world, Sammy Hagar becomes the lead singer of Van Halen. And you relate the story, but you re you relate it real quick and get off it. Do you believe it? Is there truth to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, now, come Ted on. Templeman has told me the story. Ted Templeman's told me the story himself a number of times. Um, it's absolutely true. Um, 
the thing that Ted always made clear, and I, I hope I made that clear in the book, was that it was just a sort of a thought that it was crossing his mind. He said, I may have mentioned it to one or two other people, but it was never a conspiracy to try to replace Dave with Sammy Hagar. Um, you know, if you listen to the Gene Simmons demo, Dave, his vocals are not great. And I could imagine that Ted Templeman, a guy who has um, been in a pop group himself, the Harper's Bazaar, that has done the Doobie Brothers, has produced Carly Simon, is used to these, you know, maybe these very technical singers, and is hearing Dave and is worried about his pitch and is thinking this guy maybe is not going to be able to do it um, in the studio. And so it ends up being something that he eventually drops as an idea, in part because Roth ends up writing these great songs, or he starts to really appreciate Roth's lyrics and decides to himself, you know what, I can work with this guy that I can be the guy who can put this um, put this together and do it right, put the band together, do it right, and ends up going forward with Roth. And so it was never this, you know, Warner Brothers boardroom, you know, when do we do the power play to replace Sammy Hagar with Roth? And in fact, I don't, I'm, I'm fairly confident, I'm actually very confident that if the brothers had been privy to this story, which they weren't, or if they had known that, that uh, Templin was thinking this, which they didn't, um, they would have nixed the idea themselves. I, I don't think they would have, uh, try to fire Dave or anything like that. It's time for our second break, but we'll be back with more from Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal back in a minute on Rock School. Speaking of the two-handed technique, we all know the story about uh, Eddie warming up and Ted Templeman hearing uh, eruption and saying, oh my gosh, let's put that on the album, and Eddie being upset because there's a little mistake in eruption. You have a, a story in the book about Carmen Apice. He was playing uh, on the band Cactus's album, and apparently right. there's a song called Let Me Swim, and I'm going to play it here in just a second. According to Carmen Apice... The song Eruption, the instrumental eruption, was taken from the beginning of the song from Cactus, Let Me Swim. And I'm going to play them back to back here in just a, just a second. I'll let the audience decide, but what do you think, Greg? Yay or nay? Uh, I mean, I, I think yay. I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, the Let Me Swim is one, and the other one is, is a song called Parchment Farm, which ends up being, I think, in a lot of ways, the inspiration for I'm the One. If you listen to I'm the One and Parchment Farm, um, it's not a, you know, it's not a, quote-unquote, it's as much of a closely inspired duplicate as the uh, Let Me Swim introduction there, but um, that sort of very fast-paced boogie that Cactus sort of pioneered, which was to sort of speed up the the blues boogie to this double-time speed that Eddie Knox became very, very um, fond of and did it on a number of their records, The Full Bug, Hopper Teacher, um, these you know these types of songs. That was the sort of became the Van Halen trademark. That was that was taken in part from Cactus, and yeah, um, it's. I mean, I think it's unmistakable. Yeah. 
you one more question about Van Hale, and then I want to ask a, a personal question about you. What is, and your book ends at uh, pretty much the end of the first tour, but what do you consider is going to be the legacy of this band? They, you know, they were the mighty Van Halen and then were going to die when they got Sammy Hagar and then rose to new heights with that. Then the Gary Sharon debacle and then Eddie Van Halen's uh, apparent collapse and now return to be an elder statesman. It's 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 so easy to dismiss them today, you know, because they're the older rockers. When you know, when people like you and I saw them, I mean, they were, I mean, they were gods on stage. What do you think is going to become the legacy of uh, of Van Halen? Well, I mean, I think I I do think the era of the Guitar Hero is sort of eclipsing. I I think in general that rock music is sort of running its running its course. Um, compared to what it was, I don't think it'll ever be as big as it was in the 80s guitar-driven rock music, to quote Chuck Klosterman on that. And I think he's right when he says that. Um, but I think that if you look at uh, electric guitar culture, if you open up a Guitar World magazine or a Guitar Player magazine, Eddie Van Halen's fingerprints are all over everything. Um, everything. And so, like Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen's shadow will loom large in whatever you know whatever guitar rock becomes 20 30 40 years from now i think eddie van halen as a as a songwriter and as a player is going to be part of that but you know the other thing too to think about is with with the band um great songs great albums but i i really think that david lee roth is a guy who had when people look back upon him um they they can and look forward they can see carefully thought out visual performance i always think that's sort of you know that's sort of raw one more quick thing when can we expect a second book and if you don't mind i'd like to suggest a, a topic for you okay let's suggest the topic how about that do the do the breakup of the band because your penchant for research is so so strong and the story is never told and is never told correctly is never told the same way twice you may be able to get the story <laughs> as to what exactly happened or at least i'm only i'm only laughing sides. because we'd have to we'd have to figure out have a, have a way for eddie and alex to and uh david lee roth to speak to me on the record that would be a, that would be a challenge um you know i do i have a uh, another book underway it's a van halen related book and uh i i certainly am under, I sort of am aware of the fact that the way I ended the first book, which was not intentional, by the way, it was just more that I thought that's where the story should end, that they had succeeded, and that was sort of the, the capstone, so I didn't have to write a 500-page book, but I do understand it sort of leaves the rest of the story untold, and I'm, uh, I'm going to have to keep, uh, keep writing. You hit a vein. You really did. Uh, Greg Renoff, Ph.D., wrote a book, Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, and God bless him, he took an hour and talked to me on the phone. Greg, I can't tell you how happy I am that you uh, took the time and uh, decided to appear on the show with us. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, as a parting comment, I would just say it was really, really great. I love talking about, about the book, um, and I love talking about the band, and I'd love to connect with people on Twitter, at Greg Renoff, hit me up, and uh, we'll take it from there. Joe, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yep, and folks, you will not understand it. I uh, won't understand what he's talking about until you buy the book. 
Just jump online and grab yourself a copy. You will enjoy it. Take my word for it. Greg, thanks again.